Well, good morning, everyone. Who doesn't like to be introduced by being told they're old? That's, that's very cool. It's nice to be a guest. Uh, but it's true, I was on staff at Mariners 30 years ago, um, and uh, my daughter's on staff now. She started September 1st, 2011 in Mariners um, Irvine on the youth ministry staff. I started there September 1st, 1981. 30 years to the day. It's a little, little weird. I've spoken at uh, Mariners Irvine several times, but never here. And I've heard so many great things about it. And I sneak in every once in a while because Jeff McGuire, who I know is kind of cultic here, and uh, he was, I was his youth pastor. That's my claim to fame. I was Jeff's youth pastor. And so I'm actually speaking again in September. And once I realized how popular Jeff was, I'm going to bring pictures of when he was in ninth grade. So I have some great material on Jeff McGuire. You won't want to miss that. But um, thrilled, honored to be here. So many wonderful things that I've heard about about you all, and, and just just so excited to be here today. A little bummed that the Olympics are ending the same time we're here. Anybody have Olympic fever like I've had? Anybody? Yeah, seven of us. That's great. Uh, yeah. No, I love I love the Olympics because this is the time. <laughs> it's kind of funny that. Um, it doesn't matter what sport it is, as long as there's an American in it, we're interested. And I have found myself, I mean, I've been watching archery. Who watches archery? Me, okay, because it's in the Olympics. Synchronized swimming. I wanted to make fun of that, but it's beautiful. Have you seen, I've actually tried to hold my breath as, as they hold their breath, and, and you know, I can't do it. They're just some incredible, yesterday, the people with the ribbon dancing? How, first of all, how did that become an Olympic sport? Okay. They went out to their garage, got hula hoops and balls and ribbons and started dancing. But it was stunning, just stunning. And I don't know anybody in Orange County who signs their kids up for ribbon dancing club. Uh, but it was just it was awesome to watch. And the East German, uh, the, the power lifters, those women... Oh, man, they're lifting Volkswagens. I feel weak in comparison. But my favorites are volleyball because my daughter plays, and I've watched a million matches. Girls' volleyball is very fun to watch. But the stunning is gymnastics, the floor exercises. How they get their bodies to do that, I'm amazed. I cannot touch. I haven't touched my toes since the Nixon administration. And uh, just to watch them, like, do all that stuff and then bounce. And, and I pulled a muscle just watching uh, just the cheering. But here's the deal about the Olympics that we've all discovered the last couple of weeks. When someone gets the gold medal, they're the greatest. They're the greatest in the entire world in that individual event or sport. They're the greatest. And what's interesting about greatness is I want to invite you this morning to begin to think about what does greatness look like in in your life. Greatness is interesting because it's attractive to us. That you and I are drawn towards, towards greatness. And, and when we were little children, we fantasized about something we wanted to be great at. Think about it for a second. When you were little, by show of hands, how many of you remember thinking, I want to be great at something? Raise your hand. Okay. Now I want you to, I want you to share that with me. And I've been confused this whole weekend because of this dang thing, your little Berlin Wall that you got going on here. I don't, I guess we got the communists on one side and the Christians on the other. I'm not sure how this, the prideful on one side, the humble on the other. But 
when you were a kid, what did you want to be great at? So over here, what is this? Studio B, A, Blue, what do you guys call yourself? One, one, the Moses room. All right, uh, what did you want to be great at? Talk to me. You want to be great at football, soccer, gymnastics, all sports-oriented here. What? Academics. All right. Music. Spelling bee. All right. You and the academics should get together and start a little nerd group because that's, that's cool. Okay. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave you for just a second. How about over here? By the way, there's only seven people on this side. It's really weird. It's so weird that you all have filled the place up and there's just, just weird, but they all have beverages. Uh, okay. What did you, what did you want to be great at? What? Hockey, dance, life. You just want to be the winner, don't you? Yeah, I can see as a child, as a two-year-old, I want to be great at life, mom and dad. Come on. Okay, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a great magician. And it's kind of weird, but I, I used to watch magicians and go, gosh, he's so great. And they had assistants, and they even made their assistants costumes. Half of them disappear. And I, every time I would watch a magician, I would go, they're so great. I wanted to be that guy that could pull a rabbit out of a hat. I wanted to be that guy that could, could take one of those scarves and, you know, put it in their, their hand and then, just, and then just blow and make it disappear. I wanted... Thank you. Uh, I wanted to be that. Here's the, it's the only one I know, all right? Because I never became a great magician for a few reasons. One, I could never figure out that sawing the person in half trick. Uh, two, I knew as a child that my wife wouldn't let me get an assistant. Uh, even when I got married, I knew that wouldn't happen. And uh, third, I wasn't willing to dedicate the hours and blood, sweat and tears and sacrifice to become great at that. But one of the things that I realized for many of us in here is that this concept of childhood greatness has changed as we get a little bit older. As we get a little bit older, we, we still want to be great, but really it becomes less about doing something great and actually being someone great. I realized for myself, as I follow Jesus more closely, he's... He's morphing within me this, this desire to, to be great, to be, to be great at, uh, at relationships, to be great at following. You know, nobody wants to be mediocre in life. I don't want my kids, you know, my three kids to go, oh, my dad, <laughs> he was kind of average. You know, for my wife to say, oh, you know, as a husband, he, he took up a lot of unnecessary space, you know, or... <laughs> My friends to say, he's more of an acquaintance, really, than a friend. Yeah. No, we, we, want, we want something more. And I know that you can relate to that. I know that just even based on being here a, a, couple, uh, a couple services already and talking to people in between services, people want something more. They want a, a richness of life. They want meaning. They want significance. They want greatness. And here's why. God put it in your DNA. See, you were designed for greatness. It's part of his genetic makeup for who we are as his creation. He's put this desire for greatness in us. Now, we define it 
We define greatness different than God defines it, but greatness nonetheless. It's why when the God-man Jesus came to earth, my favorite verse in the Bible, John 10.10, he said, I came, Jesus God, I came that you might have life and life to its fullest. In other translations, it says, I came that you might have life abundantly. Remember these words. I came that you might have life and a rich and satisfying life, it says in the New Living Translation. In the message paraphrase, it says, I came that you might have a better life than you ever dreamed of. You see, that's why we desire greatness is because it's planted into who we are as God's creation. And thankfully... Jesus gives us a how-to that actually aligns with our want-to. We want this, and Jesus gives us this this way to get there. We're going to take a look at an interesting encounter between Jesus and a guy. And this guy was looking for greatness, and he was looking for a version of greatness that his own money couldn't buy. If you have your Bible, you turn to Mark chapter 10, or if you have your iPad like I do, you can just flip it on or your phone, whatever has your Bible program on there. If you need a Bible, people will walk down and get one, or you can read it on the screen. Some of you will recognize this because it's in um, three of the four Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, this guy is called Young. In the Gospel of Luke, this guy is called Rich. In what we're going to read it out of in Mark He's not called young or rich, but he's obviously a person that had a lot of stuff that was important to him. And what I want to ask you to do, even if you've read it a hundred times, is I want you to find yourself in this story. Where are you in this story, in this encounter with Jesus? We'll start reading in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's pause just for a second. I like this guy right away. I like this guy right away that he went running up to Jesus Because for those of you that, if you haven't spent a lot of time in the Bible, here's what it says about Jesus. He was very attractive. He was very, everywhere he went, he drew a crowd. People were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his miracles. He was amazing. And this guy knew that Jesus had something that he wanted, enough for him to run up to him. So with his still probably trying to catch his breath, he reveals this little pocket in his soul that wants something more. And if this guy is anything like you and me, and I think that he is, he really didn't want Jesus' answer. He wanted what I call quick-fix Jesus' answers. A lot of us like quick-fix Jesus' answers. We like a little worship experience or a little song or a little, little reading or a little something, a little, a little Jesus additive. Just sprinkle a little Jesus additive on, on my life. Give me a little quick fix spiritual formula, something I can kind of apply that's kind of easy. It's, it's almost kind of like this guy wanted the icing on the cake of an already great life. Verse 18, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. So Jesus says, this guy's wanting to know how to get eternal life, life after death, and Jesus 
says like all good Jewish people would know the Ten Commandments. So he points them back to them. But here's what's interesting. As I read this, he doesn't even get through all ten. And I don't know if this is true, but kind of in my mind, I imagine the guy going, hey, 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 I know, I've been there, stop. You don't have to get through all ten. Been there, done that, I've, I've got that taken care of, because then in verse 20, he says this, Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Now, a lot of times when I read the Bible, I like to imagine, what would it be like if I was there? And I kind of put myself in that, in that scene or that scenario or that situation. And if I was there right now and this guy says, I've done all those as, since I was a boy, I would have went, eh. no, you haven't. Come on. Who are you trying to fool? There are, okay, look, I'll give you a free pass on murder. Let's just say you haven't murdered anybody. Maybe even adultery. I'll throw adultery in there. Let's say you haven't done this. But are you meaning to say that you never stole a shekel from your dad's counter? Okay, not even swiped a piece of manna from the market. I mean, when you went to Jerusalem Junior High and you were in Abacus 2, you, you never looked at somebody's bead rack during a test. I mean, you needed to say, pal, that when your mom and dad told you to go up and clean up after the camel, that you didn't make faces behind their back. Yeah, I believe that. If you believe that, I've got an island in the middle of the Dead Sea that, that I want to sell you, okay? And see... That's just my personality. I'm not buying it. And as I want to fillet this guy as a phony, look what Jesus does. Verse 21. Let's read the first seven words out loud together. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that image. Jesus looked at this guy and loved him. Some scholars believe that there's maybe even a moment there of embrace based on the word, the tenderness of this word. In the New Living Translation, I like it, it says this up on the screen. Jesus felt genuine love for this man as he looked at him. He felt genuine love. For those of you who know Jesus, that you have a relationship with Jesus, do you see those eyes when you imagine him looking at you? It's really a good question for you to consider. When you imagine Jesus looking at you, what, what, what are the condition of his eyes? Because how you answer that question will reveal a lot about your relationship with Jesus. So when the supernatural eyes of God lock in on you, do they look at you with genuine love? Or are those eyes more filled with shame and embarrassment and disappointment and disgust? It says, eyes filled with genuine love. So these eyes locking into your soul, filled with genuine love that sees your, your faults and your failures and your sickest thoughts and your sins and your inadequacies, and he looks at you with genuine love. Here's a, here's a brunch discussion. What if God isn't who you think he is, and neither are you? What if? What if God isn't who you think he is, that he's not always mad at you, and he's not always disappointed in, in you, and that he looks at you with these this genuine love, and he sees you as forgiven and therefore righteous. 
that what if God isn't who you think he is and neither are you? You see these eyes with genuine love. You know, for those of you that are parents, you, you understand what those eyes look like. You, your kids, when they, maybe they're little or whatever age, but they did things that you knew weren't right or they bugged you or they got under your skin or whatever, and then finally when they're asleep, you go into the room and you see them sleeping there and, and you can just think of them and your eyes begin to cry. You just begin to, how much you love them. They're just, even though they were punks and brats and whatever they were during the day, now they're there and you know that eye. You just, you have all this feeling of love and it just comes out in how you look at them and you begin to cry. And some of you that don't have kids, you're going, well, you begin to cry because finally they're asleep. And it's, you know, tears of joy. But I wonder, I just begin to think, what would life look like for you if you walk through life Starting today, you walk through life knowing with the confident assurance that Jesus looks at you like he looked at this man that we're talking about. That he looks at you with genuine love. I think it would be a game changer in how you and I live life. Now, let's go back to this verse because we're going to see some major whiplash here. So hang on to the look of genuine love. Look what happens when when Jesus now gives him the sting of truth in the rest of verse 21. Jesus says, One thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Whoa! Back the truck up. Severe tire damage ahead. I mean, this is just, he's spoken with genuine love. Go sell it all. Give it all away. And then come follow me. You see, Jesus didn't comfort him with an easy path to greatness. Jesus didn't say, oh, you've kept all the commandments. Wink, nod. You're a good Jew. Come on, you'll be okay. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of you when we get to heaven. No, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he raises the stakes. He didn't comfort him at all. As a matter of fact, he confronted him. He confronted him with the truth of sacrifice. Some of you are going, oh gosh, a message on sacrifice? I should have stayed and watched the closing of the Olympics a guest speaker doing a message on, I mean, maybe if Jeff McGuire was here, we'd listen to a message on sacrifice. You know, but here's the deal. Sacrifice is not sexy. It's not fun to teach on now or even back then. But if you're a follower of Jesus, sacrifice has to be a part of who you are and how you follow Jesus. Sacrifice is foundational to our faith. It's riddled throughout the whole Bible. Go back to the Old Testament. Genesis 21, 22, you've got Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. (laughs) Okay, talk about that scenario for a little bit. That'll blow your mind. Imagine being the son Isaac, thinking you're going camping with dad. You got the backpack, you got your Boy Scout merit badge. And then all of a sudden, you know, bait and switch, you're on an altar and your dad's about to kill you. Okay, uh, Dad, I missed this part in Boy Scouts. What's going on here? Shouldn't we have a sheep here or something like that? That's not me. That's not my smell. Okay? And then God intervenes and says, oh, I see. I see that you love 
you love me enough to sacrifice that which you love. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. What is the foundation of the New Testament? Why do we come to church and gather as believers every week? It is because of the sacrificial blood on the cross from Jesus Christ. God became man, sacrificed on the cross. Sacrifice, you can't escape it. It's part of who we are as followers of Jesus. Sacrifice has to be part of who you are. Now, following Jesus would be easy if sacrifice wasn't included. And instead of Jesus giving this guy simple, he gives him sacrifice. He asked him to sacrifice that which was most precious to him, which was his money, because Jesus knew his stuff would get in the way. Okay, would get in the way. Now, some of you are thinking, how did Jesus know he was rich? <laughs> he was God. Okay, so he had that whole thing going for him, which is nice. And I imagine the guy probably had a Brooks Brothers robe and uh, Giorgio Armani sandals and a lot of bling. It doesn't matter, but here's the deal. Let's be clear about this. This is not saying that money is in material possessions in and of themselves is bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that material possessions are bad. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. The love. Jesus is not saying that poverty and philanthropy is the key to salvation. He was exposing this guy's heart. And here's what I love about this story, and I missed it probably the first thousand times I read it. I just recently discovered this. And I missed this all along. Jesus wants this guy to follow him. I never picked that up. I always kind of wrote this guy off as just kind of a rich scumbag. But Jesus wants him to follow him. He says, I want you to follow me. But you've got this wagon filled with all this stuff. And you need to leave that wagon behind because right now, that stuff's just gonna, it's gonna get in the way. Your wagon is more important than following me. You're a good Jew. You know the story of Abraham and Isaac. You're Abraham. Your wagon is Isaac. It's your one thing. Okay, let's put this in 2012 vernacular. It might go something like this. Jesus saying, Doug, I want you to follow me. I really want you to follow me. I want to be close with you. I want to have a friendship with you. I want you to have some kingdom living now. But your wagon, it, it's, going to get, it's going to get in the way. You love it too much. It's, it's too important to you. And it just crowds things out as we try to walk together. And as he said it to that man, and as he says it to us, look at the man's response and see if this, you see yourself here. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. When I studied this in the original language of the Bible, the Greek and I was really looking for, the, what does that word face fell? I was, I was hoping for something more dramatic, like his face fell off. You know, just because I wanted to make the point a little bit stronger. You know, that's just the way I am. The guy lied about being perfect. Let's get his face to fall off. But actually, in the Greek, the words face fell, it has this um, the meaning of a sky anticipating a storm. So here's what happens. His face got progressively 
darker. That he comes to Jesus running with this look of anticipation, then Jesus gives him the sting of truth, and his face just gets dark. Because he began to think about all the stuff that he owned, and then he realized that stuff owns him. He was a prisoner to his own stuff, and he walks away. Now, Jesus, being the master teacher, sees a teachable moment. His followers are together, and he says this, verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were just amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You you didn't catch the humor there, did you? Because nobody laughed. Because Jesus was using this camel metaphor. It's funny. (laughs) Now, it's one thing not to laugh when I say something brilliant. And you're not discerning enough, this side of the room, to get it, because I'm sensing a lot more discernment over here. It's another thing, it's another thing not to laugh when Jesus says something funny. Okay, Jesus is trying to illustrate how difficult it's going to be for somebody who loves their money more than they love God, and he picks the largest animal in all of Palestine and says, you guys, imagine this camel fitting through a sewing needle. (laughs) See, that's the thing. Humor's all about timing. And you had to be there, apparently. Uh, Now, some people say, oh, no, Doug, I've heard that there was a gate in Jerusalem where it was called the eye of a needle, and a camel had to bow in order to go through it. It's cute. It's a nice little story. It's not historical. No evidence of that. Jesus is using humor here. He's saying it's impossible to save yourself. Verse 26. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, then who can be saved? Because in that time, in that culture, riches were seen in that culture as God's blessing. People believed that if you were wealthy, you had God's blessing. They're thinking, if this guy's not going to get in, (laughs) what chance do we have? We don't have any money. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. God is saying, You can't get in on your own terms. That's what Jesus is saying to these. You can't get in on your own terms. No one can be saved by their wealth, their title, their possessions, their gold medal, their status, the size of their home, their good moral behavior, being nice people, getting Boy Scout and Girl Scout badges. No, you can't be saved on your own. Verse 28, then Peter spoke up and said, We've left everything to follow you. You can almost see Peter's frustration going, if, if this guy is not going to get in, we've left everything. In the book of Matthew, it says this. We've left everything to follow you. Then he says this. What will we get out of this? What are we going to even get out of this? And you know what? When I think about it, that's a fair and honest question. 
Jesus, what am I going to get out of this? It may not seem like a big deal to a lot of people, but I left the family fishing business, Peter says, to follow you. I realize I don't smell like halibut every single day, but my parents weren't that thrilled. We've got no income. I mean, I, I love hearing your teaching, awesome miracles, wild thing with the pigs and the spirits, and, you know, that's, that's cool. That was actually very funny. I wish I had a videotape of that. Uh, but, but, look, what am I going to say in my 25-year reunion? I mean, this is just, if I could turn water into wine, Jesus, I'd drink right now. Okay? I mean, you could just kind of sense this frustration. And that question, what will I get out of this? I actually wish the guy would have asked that question to Jesus. The rich guy, the guy with all the stuff, the stuff in his wagon. I wish he would have said, okay, Jesus, if I make the sacrifice and I make following you more important than the stuff I'm hanging on to, what will I get out of it? Maybe you're asking that question. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time because that's something you're supposed to do, or you're dating someone or married to someone who's kind of making you do that, or you're a teenager and your parents are kind of forcing you. This has kind of become a rhythmic thing that you do, and you kind of go, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And if I really follow Jesus and get close to him and he becomes the master and I become the, uh, the, the follower, what does, what does it mean? What am I going to get out of it? You ready for the answer? Because this whole story is kind of this slow journey up to the top of a roller coaster. Now it gets fast and personal. Hang on to your pancreas. Here we go. Verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I realize that's a mouthful of big text there, but I wish the rich young ruler would have stuck around to listen to that because Jesus is reassuring them that their sacrifice has eternal ramifications. That their sacrifice is an investment in the future, eternal life upon death, but he also says what? And in this present age. And now, yes, there'll be persecutions, but persecutions bring out the richness of life. You're going to get a hundred times as much. Now, I'm not a math guy. Okay, I'm just not a math guy. But there's a difference between percent and times. Okay, now just give me. Let me do a quick illustration. I need somebody in the front row. Uh, let me borrow five bucks. Anybody have a five dollar bill? Now that was quick. Thank you. All right. Because now, now that gives me 10 because I had five from um, last service. So this is perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So in this, in this five, $5 bill, would you rather have 100% or 100 times? Okay. You gave me the money. 100% of this would be what? Your wife answers. That's nice. Okay, you're the one with the money, but she's got the brains and the looks. I get it. All right. So uh, 100% would be another five. 100 times would be what? Yeah, 500. Okay, the times, it's a, it's a bigger deal. Remember that, that thing I did at the beginning? 
Um, so you see where that illustration was going? Um, you think I'm speaking here for free? That's it. All right. Um, so here's what I do. A lot of times when I'll read the Bible, I'll get to a point, I'll go, okay, now, and I'll go to my journal and I'll summarize it. I'll go, what is happening here? What's Jesus saying? What's he, what's he calling us to? So I'm just going to open up my journal page and show you how I kind of wrap this whole text together. It starts with this. Jesus is saying, sacrifice. Then he says, don't just sacrifice. Sacrifice for my sake. When you do, you're going to get a reward a hundred times, then you're not only going to get it in eternity, you're going to get it now, okay, and then in eternity, okay, then in eternity. So you've got this sacrifice for my sake, reward a hundred times now and in eternity. Now, friends, we understand sacrifice. This room is filled with men and women who have made tremendous sacrifices for their family, for their career, for their kids to play sports. You understand what it means to make sacrifices, but those are all sacrifices for your sake. Jesus is saying you sacrifice for my sake. So the question for you and me is, what's in your wagon? What's in your wagon that is so important to you, that has become so big to you, that it's getting in the way of following Jesus, okay? What, what's in your wagon that if you had to sacrifice it, it would make your face fall? There would be this progressive darkening. Now, before you get too depressed, because it is kind of depressing at, at, at the surface level, look what you get out of it. He says you're going to get eternal life. That's in the future. That's when I die. That's over here. But get this, and this is why I want you, I, I so badly want you to get this. He says a hundred times in this present age. See, most Christians that I talk to, and most, here's what they're doing. They're hanging on for eternity. That's what they're doing. They've said a little prayer, and they're just hanging on for eternity, and they're missing out on what is called kingdom living today. This hundred times blessing that Jesus wants to give us now. See, eternal life starts now. You were designed for greatness now. We kind of have this idea. People go, well, I, you know, I've taken care of eternity. I prayed the prayer. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And now I, you know, so I've got my heaven card punched, but I'm living like hell now. That really being a Christian is just following a bunch of these do's and don'ts, and it's kind of just drudgery. And we're missing out on the power of God that the power of God promises us now. The same power that created this playground that we call earth, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to me. And it's available to you now times a hundred. Okay? That's what greatness is. So where does greatness come from? Sacrifice triggers greatness. Sacrifice triggers this 100% return sacrifice, here's how I'd say it in kind of my Twitter mind, is I would say sacrifice is the investment for greatness. You want greatness? Yes. Okay, how do I get there? Sacrifice. Sacrifice that which is keeping me from following Jesus. Now, I don't want to stand before you and pretend that I understand how God gives that 100% or 100 times blessing. I don't know exactly how it works. I know it doesn't fit our American dream mentality. 
It doesn't mean you give a dollar in the offering and you go home and there's going to be a $100 bill taped to your door. Okay? God's not a genie. It doesn't work like that. I don't understand it logically how he gives this blessing of richness, but I followed him long enough and I've seen it in the life of other people that I see it. It's that it's that favor. It's so those words we talked about in John 10.10, 10, it's the abundant life. It's life to its fullness. It's this richness of blessing. But I also know, I know the fear connected to sacrificing the wagon. I know the fear. See, I think of it like this. If all you know in life is pennies, All you know in life is pennies. You try to collect every penny that you can. But once you've experienced the dollar, okay, or uh, you've experienced the dollar, or you've experienced the multiple dollars, thank you very much, Uh, what, what do you do? All of a sudden, then you start walking by pennies, don't you? Pennies don't have value anymore because you've experienced dollars. Now, don't make this about money. Just track the metaphor. Some of us are living our life holding on to pennies. That's what our wagon is. We think it's so, so awesome what's in our our wagon. I think in God's economy, he says, it's pennies. It's pennies. I have a richness waiting for you that is so unbelievable. The kingdom living now is sacrificing your pennies for God's dollars, for abundant living, for rich and satisfying, for better life than you could ever dream of. So let's make this about you. Let's twist the knife just a little bit. You're to walk up to Jesus. You say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want that hundred times, great eternal life, in the future when I die, great. I want that a hundred times living, richness, abundant life now. Jesus, would you help me identify what's in my wagon? What am I holding on to that's keeping me from following you? Then you imagine the genuine eyes of love, these eyes that love you so deeply and so tenderly and knows everything about you, these, these eyes of love telling you the one thing that's in your wagon. I would guess half of us in here, we already know what the answer is. The other half, it's good homework this week. Be thinking about that. I'll tell you mine. I'll tell you what's in my wagon. Busyness, schedule, pace, hurry, rush, Activity. See, I'm not the rich young ruler. I'm the busy young ruler. I'm not young. I'm, I'm the busy middle-aged kind of self-employed speaker type person. Okay, That what I need to sacrifice, my schedule, my agenda, my pace, all these stuff, that, these things that busy me, that if I'm really honest... They're fueled by a misguided ambition of wanting a different type of greatness. You see, my wagon is turbocharged. My wagon is Orange County. It goes fast. 
My wagon is moving. And here's what I know about Jesus. Jesus is calling me as I draw closer to him. He's calling me to an unhurried life. Jesus was never in a hurry. He's calling me to walk with him and develop this intimate relationship. He's not calling me to race my wagon past him, to drive, drive my wagon quickly uh, ahead of him. No, he's calling me to walk with him. And I can't walk with him and develop the intimacy and the richness of life that he's promised me when everything is so busy in my life. That's just my wagon. That's not yours. I'm just telling you. I'm exposing mine so you'll be more comfortable with yours. About 10 days ago, two weeks ago, I was, I was out running one morning and I, jogging. Running indicates speed. So I, I was jogging one morning and I was praying. I was just talking to Jesus and I was praying about this guy named Seth. And Seth is a guy who lives in Indiana. He's married, has a, they have a baby. And he's moving out here to Southern California to work with me and my friend Jim Burns at Homeward. Homeward is a ministry locally where we, we help parents and families and marriages. And I'm praying for Seth and his wife and his babies. They're moving out here because I'm just, I'm grieving the fact that they're going to have this Orange County culture shock when it's going to cost him $1,500 for a one-bedroom apartment. And he knows it, and we've, adjusted, we've talked salary, and he knows what he's getting into, but I'm just praying that, Jesus, you asked me to bring my burdens to you, so here you go. I just, I, I'm praying that something's going to happen. Okay. Later that day, I'm at my office. And my office is, um, for several years, is whatever fast food restaurant I'm at. Um, I have an addiction to Diet Coke, and that's where I office out of. If they have internet and Diet Coke, it is God's office. And um, so at this particular day, I was at the crazy chicken, El Pollo Loco. And I've got my, my hat on, my, my headphones in, my laptop on, and I have deadlines and due dates and writing stuff and piles of to-dos, and I'm, I'm really busy on my stuff. And in walks this couple that I haven't seen in about three years. I used to go to church with them. Lovely, lovely, wonderful, godly couple. And my first instinct was head down. Head down. Don't, don't, don't make eye contact. Keep working. You've got to get this done. And then... I immediately thought of my wagon, the wagon that I'm trying to sacrifice. Every day I'm lifting that wagon up to Jesus saying, I want to sacrifice it. So I get up, go refill my drink, wander by their table. Hey, oh, look at, oh, ho, ho, act surprised. Uh, look at you guys. <laughs> then sat down with them, only for about 15 minutes. We just laughed and we caught up and we, we talked. And as I get ready to leave, she says to me, is there anything I can pray for you for? Kind of caught me off guard a little bit. And I went, well, I, uh, this, morning, this morning I was praying for my buddy Seth. Him and his wife and baby are moving out here. And I just, I hate the thought of them renting a one-bedroom apartment in Orange County for 1500 bucks. And, uh, and she says, when are they moving out? And I said, mm, the end of August. She goes, oh. We moved to Branson, Missouri for three months every fall. We're leaving at the end of August. They can stay in our house for free. I went, Really? said, yeah. And we started talking about the dates of when they're going to leave, when they're going to get back. This will blow you away. You know how many days they're gone? 100. Not really. 86. But 
dang it. Wouldn't it be great if it was 100? It'd just, it'd be like Joel Osteen moment right there. So when I write that illustration in my book, it'll be 100, all right? Because I'm just going to ask him to stay away for two more weeks so I can have integrity about that. But here's what I, here's what I reflected on. I thought, I, I kind of thought after that, I just said, thank you, Jesus. I sat down. I just kind of imagined those eyes of genuine love on me. And I just in this, it's not an audible voice. It's just this stillness in my heart. I just kind of felt like Jesus was saying, Doug, smile, genuine love. You're playing with pennies. I have so much more. This richness of life, this abundant life, this better life than you've ever dreamed of, that's nothing for me to orchestrate a house. Nothing. You're hanging on to your agenda and your ambition and your career and your pennies. And I want to let you know that I got a better agenda. I got kingdom living now for you. I've got treasures waiting for you. Give up the pennies. Walk with me. Don't run past me. Okay, that's Doug. Okay, enough about me. Let's get to you. I'd rather pick on you than me anyway. Uh, what, what's in your wagon? What do you need to sacrifice? I don't know. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe there's a relationship getting in the way of you walking more closely with Jesus and you need to sacrifice that relationship. And you know what you find is maybe there'll be a hundred experiences, conversations, more vibrant love. I mean, maybe, maybe you're in the marketplace and you're hanging on to this illusion of success. And because you're going after that illusion of success, you're pushing everybody who's important to you to the side your marriage, your kids, the whole bit, because you're going after that illusion of success, and maybe that needs to be sacrificed. And as you draw close to Jesus, you understand what significance is. And it looks different than that, but it's a lot richer. Maybe you're addicted to something. A beverage, a drug, pornography, spending. And you need to sacrifice your ego and come clean and tell somebody so that Jesus can give you a hundred good habits that'll redirect the course of your life. Maybe, maybe you're like the rich young ruler and your wagon's filled with materials. It's your, your toys and your home and your income and your title and all the stuff that money can buy that is owning you. And Jesus wants to own you. And maybe you figure out what does it look like to hold that with a loose grip. And all of a sudden you become a kingdom steward of your stuff. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you're here and you're one of many people who's just checking Jesus out. You're not, you're not a Christian. You're not a follower. You've just been invited or you stumbled in or you thought it was a party or you wanted to see what a church with two seating sections looked like. I don't know. But maybe what you need to sacrifice, you're not even a follower yet, but maybe you need to sacrifice your ego a little bit, your pride, that you think you've got this whole Jesus thing figured out. And just start following him. See what happens. Begin to read about him. Why were people amazed? 
follow. You see, because the first people that followed, I know this may shock some of you, you won't like this. The first people who followed Jesus, <laughs> they weren't Christians. Sorry to shock you, okay? They were just people who sacrificed what they had and they followed. They weren't even believers yet. Jesus said, follow me. Boom, they drop everything, go. Maybe that's what you need to do. I don't know what it is for you. Make it personal, okay? Now, let's go from personal to practical. I created a a piece of art, an artwork that I want to show you. And um, it'll be very impressive. And it looks like this, okay? Uh, There it is. I did that all myself. And what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to take that 100 times and write it down somewhere where you're going to see it every day this week to be reminded of sacrifice and the promise of Jesus. Okay? I don't know, three by five card on the dashboard of your car. You write it on a piece of tape, put it on your, your uh, toothbrush. If you're going to get a tattoo this week, get it done, okay? <laughs> it's not trademarked, you can have it, all right? I saw a girl last night, she wrote it on the inside of a pen, wrote it on the inside of her wrist. Whatever works for you, all right? Shave it into the side of your dog. I don't care, okay? I just want you to have it in a place where you see it and you'd be reminded of Jesus' promise and your sacrifice. Friends, Jesus has planted greatness into your heart. You don't have to walk out of here with a face that's fallen. Don't be the person who's defined by what's in their wagon. Be the person who's enriched by what Jesus promises to do. To give you a life, a better life than you've dreamed of. A more abundant life. Okay? I can see it. That's what transformed lives look like. Defined by God's greatness. I can see it in you. Okay? Let's pray together. Jesus, it takes such courage to make sacrifices of things that we are so comfortable with. Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring something new and fresh in our lives, that we would be reminded of your genuine love for us as you look at us. I pray for those who their wagon is filled with so much that they don't want to give up, that you'd begin to do a little work in their heart, that we might see what happens when we sacrifice, and our sacrifice is an investment for the greatness that you offer. That's what we want. We ask this in the name of Jesus.